is talk a little bit about the history of this technique and talk some about the context for doing this practice in terms of the structure of the model and spend most of the time that we have um, receiving questions from you. The story begins a long time ago, 2,500 years ago, or somewhat more, when Siddhartha Gautama was born as a prince in northern India. It said that, and most of you are familiar with this, it said that at the time of his birth, there were many um, astrologers called in to predict his future. And it was said at that time that there were two ways open to him. He would go one of two ways in his life. One way was to become what is called a universal emperor or universal monarch and rule over the entire world. The other way was to renounce the world, to leave the world, and to become fully enlightened, to become a Buddha which is a title, meaning awakened one. So those were the two options. Either he would rule the world, or he would (laughs) become fully awake. It's said as part of the story that his father was quite determined that he not leave the world, that he stay and become a universal emperor. Some people say that that was because the father himself was a king and he wanted his son to carry on in the family business (laughs) and to, to rule the world. So it is said that the Buddha grew up in an extremely protected environment because his father knew that it would be some vision or some touching upon dissatisfaction or the suffering inherent in life that would set his son to asking some very deep questions and to pursuing the answers to those questions. And so he was protected as much as possible from seeing any kind of suffering or difficulty or ugliness or strife. It said that they had a whole um, large number of gardeners whose job it was just to go into the royal gardens at night and pluck off any withered blossoms so that he would not have to be faced with the sight of decay in any form. That everything would be perfect. He had many palaces and had access to every kind of sensual delight. At the age of 29, he encountered four sights. His charioteer drove him outside of the the compound, the royal compound, and it said that devas, or celestial beings, came down to earth and manifested as first a sick person, and then an old person, and then a corpse, 
and then a monk or a renunciate. And the Buddha, upon seeing these sights, first had to ask his charioteer things like, you know, why is that person looking so feeble and wretched and walking with a cane? And what's the matter? And the charioteer would say, well, that's just a, a very old person or a sick person. And the Buddha would say, really? <laughs> does that happen to everyone or does that just happen to someone? You know, or something like, what did he do to deserve that? And the charioteer would say, well, it happens to everybody. It's just the nature of things. You know, we all grow old, or we all get sick, or we all die. That night, the Buddha left home to seek answers to some very profound questions. What is the nature of this existence? What is the nature of the mind and body? What is the root cause of suffering in our lives? And can I become free of that? Can I, through my own understanding, see clearly the nature of things? And then it is said that for the next six years he pursued a course that was diametrically opposite to his early life. He practiced very extreme and severe asceticism really tormenting and torturing the body, as though by doing that, by subduing the body, the mind could become free. And it said that nobody could surpass the Buddha in his extreme, at that time the Bodhisattva, or aspiring Buddha, in his extremes of asceticism that he would eat at some point one grain of rice a day one sesame seed a day, and that at one point when he went to touch his stomach, he could feel his backbone. And the same in the way he approached thinking. He tried to stop his thinking by holding his breath, and his breath blew out his ears, and he stopped up his ears, and, and on and on it went until after six years of pursuing those kinds of practices, he decided that they were fruitless, that it was not the way to, to becoming free, and ate some food to sustain his body and get some bodily strength, sat down under the Bodhi tree with the resolve, I'm not going to move from this spot until I have become free until I have fully understood the true nature. And by the, I think it was actually at dawn, the time of the first, first dawn, that he became enlightened. What I want to talk about is a little bit about um, what enlightenment means in this sense what it means to us today, sitting in this hall. There's a delineation made within this system of teaching between different kinds of attainment or accomplishments that are available to us. One whole path is the path of samadhi, or concentration. With the path of concentration, 
We focus on a single object, consider everything else to be a distraction from that object, and work to get the mind more and more focused and steady on that one point or that one, one object. Over time, the kinds of scatteredness and running around of the mind begin to diminish and there's a much greater sense of wholeness and power and completion behind watching that single object. Over more time and with diligent application, there arise a series of experiences known as jhanic experiences or absorptions, which are profoundly altered states of consciousness states of unity and oneness where all of the mind is gathered into that one point. It's great power and a sense of great wholeness. And there are a succession of these experiences. There are eight in all according to the system. Each one more and more and more refined. Things like the, the absorption of infinite consciousness or infinite space. It said that during that six-year period, the Buddha experienced all eight of these kind of fantastic, super-normal states and decided at the end of each one that it was not true freedom or liberation of the heart, and he was not emancipated from the experience of that state. And at the end of experiencing all eight, he asked, his teacher, well, what's next? And the teacher said, well, there is no next. This is it. And so what he set out to do was to find a different approach to working with the mind, not just using the force and power of concentration, but developing, rather, an insight into his own mind and body. And this is a little different. While it leads to, or while it it is based in part on the development of concentration, concentration being one of the many factors that are involved, its end or its goal is not the same. The Buddha felt the teaching goes dissatisfied with the attainment of the jhanic states because they were still states of experience. Even though they were fantastic and extraordinarily blissful and unified states of consciousness, they still arose, they still passed away. They were subject to time. And being subject to time, being changing, They were necessarily unsatisfactory, still within the conditioned realm, even though they might have been at the further reaches of it. They were all still experiences. They fell within the realm of duality, and they fell within change or time.
what the Buddha found was that with the development of not just concentration, but a very powerful concentration in balance with many other factors, there arose an intuitive opening into a very different kind of experience, which was actually not an experience at all. It was beyond what we would call an experience. These other qualities, which we will talk about at much greater length throughout the retreat, are first concentration, and tranquility, and equanimity, and rapture, investigation, energy, and mindfulness. The Buddha found that with the, the deepening of these seven qualities and their perfect balance, that automatically out of that balance, there became an intuitive opening to the unconditioned, that which is unformed and unborn and undying, not subject to change, not subject to decay, and so not unsatisfactory or suffering in that sense. And this he called nibbana or nirvana. And set out to teach the way to experience, so to speak, (laughs) or come to a place of perfect balance out of which there was an opening to the unconditioned saying that it was, it was this opening which actually was a state of freedom. It was freedom from the conditioned realm. It was beyond the mind and body altogether. And the Buddha taught the Eightfold Path as the way to come to that perfect balance out of which this opening could naturally happen. What happens, it seems, through the years of the tradition being passed on was that quite a bit of this got lost. Not in terms of the the purity of the teaching, which seems to have been kept incredibly purely intact, almost phenomenally. Sometimes when I think about it, I'm I'm just awed. If you think about, you know, the telephone game where and if I told someone something to someone in the front row who whispered it to someone in the back, who told it to someone behind them, by the time it reached the back of the room, it would be amazing if it bore any resemblance at all to what I'd originally said. And it seems to be the nature of most human you know, communication. The fact that through 2,500 years, the teaching could be kept intact is really a miracle. But what did get lost a lot was the practical application of it and the understanding which is truly keeping the tradition alive by following it through. One major distortion that happened over the centuries was a belief that was the growth of a belief that because the Buddha 
himself had experienced all eight of these jhanic states or states of absorption before he practiced vipassana or insight meditation to develop the seven factors of enlightenment and bring them to balance, it began to be taught that everyone needed to do that. Because the Buddha himself had first perfected the path of concentration to the very end of it, that that was the way and that everyone needed to do that. And this being a nearly impossible attainment, that teaching tended to divert the power of the tradition and to make it almost more of a devotional one because people believed that they themselves could not realize the truth, that to be able to realize the truth, first they needed this fantastic, unbelievable degree of concentration. It was pretty much a lost cause. And that what people should do would be to do good deeds and make merit and be reborn at another time when there was a Buddha and kind of try again. (laughs) What we are the, the very fortunate recipients of has been pretty well actually kind of a revolution within the Buddhist world that started at the turn of the century with various teachers um, saying that's not so, that it is possible in this very lifetime to become free, and if not to become fully free, to make great strides in that direction. It is not something that we either have to respect that someone, you know, somebody did it so long ago and feel removed and um, that it's an abstract teaching. And it's also not something that we have to think about doing, you know, 300 lifetimes from now. That right here and now, we can develop tremendous understanding of our universe, of our lives, and what they're about. And we can each work with developing insight and understanding into the the mind and the body, and then ultimately beyond. And that that is something that we are all quite capable of doing. So around the turn of the century, there was a great empowerment of people as teachings became accessible again. And we are the heirs and heiresses to that time. So the particular teaching that we are working with is very much one based on insight or understanding. Within the scope of this teaching, there is no effort made at all to try to have special or unusual or, you know, quote, mystical experiences. What is done is two things. One is the growth and development of these seven factors of enlightenment and their constant rebalancing 
and the other is the development of a deep intuitive understanding of who we are, what this body is about, what this mind is about, what being alive means. And so it is very much based on not an acquiring, getting, having model, but on letting go of conditioning, on dropping preconceptions, on learning how to see, learning how to look, learning how to touch deeply our momentary experience, allowing that to be the vehicle for going within. And it is based on a sense of balance and coming into perfect balance, knowing that it is from that state of balance that whatever will lead us onwards can unfold. It's based upon the middle path. The Buddha having spent the first part of his life in extreme sensory indulgence, and then the middle part of his life, or later part of his life, in extreme asceticism, he called his way of understanding the middle path. For some of us, it may seem like asceticism. Somebody once coined the phrase, the upper middle path, (laughs) to describe what we, we felt as a culture most comfortable with. And so even working with a middle path, there can be a lot of sense of renunciation and sacrifice and needing to let go. Coming to that place of balance from which understanding can arise. Early on in my practice career, Manindra said something very important to me. He said, The Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem. Now you've got to solve yours. (laughs) And I want to say this to you to try to help set the tone for for the retreat. That we're not especially concerned with what the Buddha came to find out because that solved the Buddha's problem but we are very concerned in creating and maintaining an environment in which each of you can find out for yourselves. We once toyed with the idea of, rather than getting up here and saying, everything is changing, everything that arises in the conditioned universe is changing. We once toyed with the idea of saying, There's something that's really permanent. And if you look very, very, very carefully, with complete detachment at all of your experience, then you'll find it. Just wondering what people would come up with. (laughs) And I could just imagine the frustration as people came and said, but everything is changing. (laughs) Whatever I find, whether it's in the mind or the body, it's, it's always changing. And I say that just to perhaps remind you that 
We're not asking you to adopt a belief system or a set of views or opinions. What is most important is your own personal sense of freedom, which can only come out of your own experience and understanding. I think I'd like to take questions now. And I'd appreciate it if they bore some relevance to the practice. <laughs> Maybe nobody has questions. Uh, uh, Doug. Can you comment a little bit on how, how this particular practice differs from other Theravadan techniques? The question was how this particular practice differs from other Theravadan techniques. This practice is based very much on developing the four foundations of mindfulness. The four foundations of mindfulness being mindfulness of the body, and then a feeling state, that's the quality of pleasantness or unpleasantness and neutrality with each experience, and then consciousness, and then dhammas, which seem to be a combination of um, certain mental factors and their relationships to one another. Many techniques stress just one or just two of these ways of looking, um, all based on mindfulness, but the field of awareness can be limited to just one or two. People um, sometimes just pay attention to the body and don't pay attention to thoughts or to mind states. Um, there was one technique that I always liked, which was taught somewhere in Thailand, where all you did all day long was pay attention to mental defilements. <laughs> you know? And just watch the arising and the passing away of, of defilements that came. I always felt drawn to that somehow. <laughs> you know, so within the, the scope of um, everything which can be paid attention to, many techniques focus on just a few. This particular one takes in all four and works with all four. Mm-hmm. One of, one of, in these successive nights, one night, I'll tell you my life story, as will Joseph, um, which has a lot to do with what it was like to practice in Asia. One thing that seems to be very powerful about practicing in Asia is that you really learn pretty quickly what's the middle path and what's the upper middle path. 
because there's a lot of discomfort and things that one has to let go of and just can't have that would make life much more comfortable. Um, and so I, I think there's, there's the strong growth of certain qualities if you use those situations well, if you can adapt. We used to say in India that people would have, you know, just one of a few reactions to the country and the way it was. Some people just loved it. And some people went crazy within two weeks and had to leave. And some people stayed just hating it the whole while. And practicing there is, is a little bit like that um, in certain situations. There's a lot of um, noise. There's a lot of ill health. There's a lot of dirt. <laughs> um, there's, in Buddhist countries, there's tremendous faith. Uh, you practice in the context of a very loving support and tremendous respect on the part of the people for the practice. That's the positive side. It said that in um, Sri Lanka, for example, there's this one monastery where this particular technique is taught, and all of the food that meditators eat is given by village people who just have so much respect for people doing the practice, even people who are not monks and nuns, just lay people doing the practice. And to give, to make an offering of food to people doing meditation is so very highly honored that they have a waiting list of about one year. And when the time comes for when your name gets to the top of the list, about a year after you make the offering, it said that sometimes that whole villages will come to the monastery and will stay up all night preparing food. And then as the meditators come to receive the food, the village people will bow like, to the ground and then offer the food. So if you can imagine going into the dining hall <laughs> and having people bowing to you and offering you food from, from being on the ground, on their knees, because of their respect for what you're doing and the sincerity with which you're doing it, you can imagine how it makes you feel about the sincerity with which you do it. <laughs> and it is, it is a very profound reciprocal relationship to realize that people will so honor and revere this kind of looking and letting go and exploration that it is so honored and revered that they will wait a year to be able to offer you food. And then you receive the food it makes it difficult to take lightly <laughs> one's own practice you know, or, or to be flippant or negligent. Um, it really helps foster a sense of faith and impeccability. But on the other hand, um, there are very, very difficult conditions in many places in Asia, not in every place, but in many places. And so it becomes, for the most part, a teaching about patience and renunciation and simplicity of life. But it's got its, its positive and its negative aspects, as does practice here.
One thing that is certain is that you take the mind with you wherever you go. And so it, it, um, it is as troublesome there as it is here. There's not much to be done about that. This last time that we sat in the spring and summer, was, uh, it was wonderful to be able to sit here and knowing the difference between many of the environments that um, exist in India, where we did practice, and what we experienced here. It was, it was quite extraordinary. In terms of practicing as a, a lay person or as um, a monk or a nun, it's helpful to view what happens here really as a special time in your life. Um, it's a time of going deeply within it may bear little relationship to what your actual day-to-day life is like, and that's fine. In this period where everyone is, is really a renunciate and living, living very simply, uh, you can experience some of the fruits of that kind of life. In terms of doing the intensive practice and coming to a deeper understanding, um, we all live quite simply here, which is considered a very good foundation for that kind of exploration. Which reminds me actually that um, Deepama has made the request that people once a week go on eight precepts rather than just the uh, five that we usually follow. And what the other three are, are well, this was mentioned before, is not sleeping on a high and luxurious bed, which is not that much of a problem, um, not wearing adornments, makeup or jewelry or um, such things, and not going to entertainments, which is also not much of a problem. Um, and then the one that is something of a problem, <laughs> or is, is somewhat meaningful, is not taking solid food after noon. And so this is an opportunity to, if you wish to follow it, and it will be optional, um, to further practice that a kind of renunciation, or, or giving up, or letting go. So we're going to do that on Sunday. This Sunday, if those of you who would like to undertake that, she asked us to to um, request uh, something somewhat of a lavish lunch, <laughs> so that nobody needed to fear <laughs> that they would starve to death <laughs> by the evening. But I think you will see, just as the retreat goes on, those of you who either are monks and nuns or have done retreats before, 
just the joy of getting simpler and simpler and simpler um, and letting go of more and more and more. I won't, I'm going to give um, a whole talk on renunciation, but I think that what's important to understand is that there is great joy in it. It's actually an act of joy and an act of self-respect when it's done properly, when it's not done in a spirit of denial or diminishing oneself. But it can be based on the understanding that there is really nothing that we need to be happy. And that it is not in having and holding and getting and acquiring that we find happiness. So there is nothing outside of ourselves that actually will bring deep happiness. And it's out of that understanding and that sense of being complete in oneself that we can renounce and let go and give up or relinquish lots of different objects or events that normally we might think, oh, I need this to be happy. You know, if only I had that, then I'd be happy. So being able to be very simple is actually, it can be an expression of a lot of inner strength, and it's very joyful when it's that way. I think it's really difficult. (laughs) (laughs) I think it is very difficult. I was, just, I was reminded of a line in the Dhammapada where the Buddha said, um, the household life is very, something like, this is a paraphrase, something like, the household life is very difficult, and very difficult is the life of a renunciate. <laughs> you know, it's all very difficult. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. <laughs> to say it's difficult to talk about um, the approach I actually like the best is the reaffirmation of the understanding that mindfulness from moment to moment um, is both the means to experience whatever there is to be experienced in terms of 
uh, deep understanding, and it is also the expression of the enlightened mind. So it kind of comes around full circle. Um, in the traditional teaching, it's said that there are these four kind of landmark times in understanding out of which those qualities which may have been deeply developed and strongly entrenched within us, out of those transformative experiences, um, those qualities become unwavering or unshakable. And the teaching is that amongst the changes of the, quote, first stage of enlightenment, unquote, um, comes an understanding, actually, of the middle way, of the middle path, the Eightfold Path, and an understanding, just as the Buddha had, that it is neither through sensory indulgence nor through asceticism, extreme asceticism, that one can develop true understanding. And part of that as well is, there are two other parts of that, it, it said. The first um, corollary to that is what they, what they usually term as a disbelief in rites and rituals. It's an understanding that it is an inner process of purification and developing of a personal insight that brings personal freedom. That that freedom is not to be found external to ourselves. And so it is not through, um, for example, praying to the Buddha to be saved, although you're welcome to try it. <laughs> you know, it is not through um, looking outside of ourselves for a true for an ultimate refuge or light, um, that that is not the way, that the way is from our own understanding, that our own understanding will bring freedom. And so there's the, the discounting of rites and rituals as a means to freedom. And then the third aspect, which is somewhat more subtle, um, seems to be a cessation of attachment to a particular technique or point of view as being the way. There's an understanding that, for example, what we are doing here is a technique for the development of, say, these seven factors of enlightenment, concentration and mindfulness and energy, investigation, rapture, tranquility, and equanimity. And that, that is the purpose of what we are doing. And so it's said that at that stage of enlightenment, that is very clear. That kind of relationship is very clear. 
and so that one wouldn't have a kind of um, sectarian attachment to the technique, but would understand that the technique is for the purpose of developing certain qualities, and that there may be other techniques which also develop those qualities. And so there's not a kind of separation or um, rigidity of view after this experience. Um, Again, it's sort of like... um, tuning in very fully to the laws of nature and bringing ourselves more and more into harmony with those laws. That is actually both our immediate attempt, the sense of this very moment, and it's also our ultimate goal. There are a few things we can do which, in which I think what we can do in this very moment are so reflective of where we're going. And so I find personally that it's most helpful not to think about it at all. (laughs) And just to concentrate very fully on um, being present in the moment. This doesn't mean that, um, not thinking about it doesn't mean not feeling inspired by it. I think it's very inspiring to realize that we are all capable of a very deep and powerful understanding. But not to think about it in the sense of not um, worrying about it while you're meditating. (laughs) Just to to, uh, let it go. I had one teacher who used to say, um, enlightenment is like gravity. It doesn't matter whether you believe in it or not, or you like it or not, or you want it or not. It just happens. (laughs) It just happens as a natural consequence of certain other things happening. And so it seems more important to concentrate on um, developing the kind of balance out of which, whether we like it or not, or believe it or not, or want it or not, we can have intuitive openings into that which is beyond the mind and body. Is there anybody else? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, two generations ago, it was um, a Burmese monk named Mahasi Sayadaw who was most responsible for disseminating the teaching in this form, uh, this particular technique rising and falling and noting and slow walking and all of that. And um, very much responsible for the kind of popularization of intensive meditation practice in different countries. And it was quite unpopular. 
his point of view was said to be very unpopular in different places. Um, the way we came about it, or why you ended up sitting here in Barry, Massachusetts. <laughs> um, was the result of many conditions, <laughs> a lot of different strands of karma. Menindra, who was Joseph's teacher, uh, studied with Mahasi Sayadaw for many years in Burma and then returned to his native India and began teaching. Joseph was his student. Um, Goenka, who was a student of a, a different teacher altogether in Burma, also returned to India and began to teach around 1970. And through various obscure <laughs> means, Joseph and I each ended up in India, studying and practicing. Um, in coming back, we both came back at different times in 1974. We began teaching very slowly. Um, people we had known in India asked us to teach retreats, and everything was very kind of disorganized and spontaneous in those days. And we would go to a retreat and we would teach it, and at the end of the retreat, we'd never know if there was ever going to be another retreat. <laughs> or whether we would just go back to India. Um, and that lasted for quite some time. You know, just get invitations from different places and, and go wherever we were asked and lead a retreat and then go on to the next. And about two years, after about two years of doing that, we were tired of traveling and some people suggested establishing a center where we could stay more long-term and the people could come and go rather than us coming and going all the time. Um, and you know, we'll each tell our stories at, at much greater length. But what we were each most touched by in India was the offering of the teaching in the spirit in which it was offered to us, which again was, was very much centered around people's personal effort and application of energy, rather than the adoption of a belief system or um, some sense of needing to uh, do comparative religion or philosophy. It was very pragmatic and very free and open to whoever wanted to investigate. And there were no constrictions or, or constraints around who would be able to explore the teaching or what they would do with it afterwards was completely their business, you know. It was not um, demanded of anyone that they uh, behave in a certain way once they left a retreat. You know, it, was, it was a very free and independent and self-reliant process, and that was very much the spirit that we wanted to maintain in its pure form in bringing, bringing the practice here.
environment, uh, how differently the world <coughs> looks after an enlightenment experience. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll ask Steve one to answer that question since she brought it up to begin with. <laughs> I was thinking that questions that began, could you make any comments at all, sounded better than the questions that began, well, if there's no self, <laughs> so thank you. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, if you get enlightened before the end of the retreat, you can be the first to tell us. One thing I would like to say, actually, is that... Um, You will have the benefit, I think, as we had in our own practice of studying or practicing under several different teachers, or at least hearing the input of several different teachers. And one powerful lesson that comes from that is an understanding that to whatever degree somebody becomes enlightened, um, even if it's just a small deepening of wisdom, all the way up to, you know, full freedom and purification of mind, that it can manifest in many, many different ways. Now, this isn't precisely an answer to your question. Um, it did bring this to my, to my mind, um, that in terms of personality characteristics, there is no model that someone needs to try to pursue. There's no such thing as, you know, the enlightenment package that, uh, you know, once you get to first stage or second stage or third stage or fourth stage of enlightenment, then this is um, the necessary consequence, except in terms of purity of mind. But one of, one of the great benefits of studying with different teachers was to see how different from one another they all were and how there was no need to try to accommodate oneself into a certain model or mold, you know, thinking, well, so-and-so is really enlightened, and I'll just start doing that, <laughs> you know, being that way and acting that way and thinking that way, because it's not, it both doesn't work and it's not necessary. It's um, much more a question of an inner freedom, a sense of space and and harmony, harmony with how things are, for oneself. Okay, it's time to walk. Thank you.